Welcome to the latest edition of our Fixed Interest podcast series. My name's Ed Parker. I'm the Global Head of Sovereign Research at Fitch Ratings. I'm joined today by Brian Coulton, Fitch's Chief Economist and lead author of the latest edition of our Global Economic Outlook. Brian, perhaps you can kick off the discussion by talking us through the main messages from your updated forecasts. We can then drill down into some of the issues in a bit more detail. The subtitle of this edition of the GEO is Central Bank Inflation Fight Continues. I guess that tells us what you think is the key issue for the global macro outlook. Yeah, thanks, Ed. Yeah, I think that broad theme is still very much dominant, but I, I would say there are three main takeaways really from this edition of our, of our global forecasts. Uh, the first is that the world economy is holding up better in the near term than we expected. And so we're a little bit more optimistic now about growth this year. The second is that China is recovering uh, after last year's lockdowns. Uh, it's proving to be a bumpy path, but we still see an expansion there and slightly faster than we were expecting in March. And then the third point is that central banks seem to become a lot more worried in the last few months about inflation becoming persistent. And that means that the interest rate hiking cycle is not only proving more aggressive, but it's also proving more extended. So just to dial in on a couple of those points in a little bit more detail, on the better incoming news and in terms of the near-term outlook looking stronger than expected, to some extent, this is, this is just data-driven. A lot of countries saw better growth in the first quarter than we expected. That was most particularly marked in emerging markets ex-China. Some of the big emerging market economies, Brazil, India, Mexico, even Russia, all saw a lot stronger growth in the last three or four months than we were, we were expecting. And that's fed through to their forecasts. We're also starting to see prospects for interest rates peaking and starting to come down in some of these bigger emerging markets as well. Bit of a contrast there with the developed countries that is help helping the outlook. But the, the better income news is not just about emerging markets. It's also uh, the US consumer and, and the labor market position as well. Secondly, on China, what we see going on there uh, is that the consumer has recovered more quickly than we thought at the beginning of the year, but continues. We, we would expect consumption to continue to expand. It really was suppressed quite heavily uh, last year by the lockdowns, and we would expect continued normalization. Now, when we first uh, looked at this in March, we put our forecast together for the March GEO. We were pretty cautious in the upgrade we made then. We only upgraded growth in China to 5.2. A lot of other houses went to 6% plus. We thought that was too aggressive because of the ongoing weakness in property and the export slowdown. Clearly, a lot of the market has got very worried about China more recently, but we still think when we're looking at these numbers, still seeing retail sales expand still seeing evidence of the consumer spending normalization going on. We're seeing some signs of property starting to stabilize. Don't worry quite so much about the inventory overhanging the property sector as, as we were, say, back into 2015. The inventory sales ratio doesn't look anywhere near as high as that now. And the Chinese government is starting to ease policy. So when you put all those things into the mix, we're probably going to get less of a drag on the economy from property this year than last year. The consumer will recover. We think that's that's enough to outweigh slower net export growth in terms of its impact on GDP. So getting to 5.6, we think, is easily doable for China, even if growth slows down from here. And then this third point really is just uh, comes back to the overarching theme, uh, as, as mentioned in the subtitle. Monetary policy is really proving to be not only more aggressive, but a longer drawn out process. That's not just in terms of what's actually happening to interest rates. It's also about the impact of interest rates on the economy. And so 
while we've become more optimistic on growth this year, we've actually become more pessimistic on growth next year because we see the whole process of monetary tightening and it impacting the economy uh, taking longer. So why has growth been more resilient than we expected so far this year? And specifically on the US, we've again pushed back the start of our forecast recession in this GEO. Is it possible that the US avoids recession altogether? I think there's sort of been three drivers of this surprising resilience. One is that the labor markets, once again, have held up better than we expected. So employment growth is is holding up. Unemployment remains very low. That's supporting household confidence, job security. It's also supporting aggregate household real income growth, even though real income per capita is being eroded by inflation. Aggregate real income growth, which is what drives aggregate consumption, is, is, is being supported by employment. The savings buffers built up in the pandemic have been helping. We've seen the saving ratio in the US since January 2022 has been much lower than the long run average. We think that's partly because those buffers have been have been drawn on. And we've also, of course, uh, since the end of last year, had a number of sort of positive supply shocks in the sense that European natural gas prices have come down and we've seen a significant easing in those supply chain bottlenecks which were constraining output last year. So that's that's been helping point with all three of those things, though, is that we don't expect them to go on supporting growth. But the other factor here that we flagged in our report is, of course, that nominal growth is holding up pretty well. So if you look at nominal GDP in the US in the first quarter, it grew 7% year on year, much faster than the 1.5% growth in in real GDP. And this is a reflection of uh, the growth in the in the GDP deflator, which in turn is because firms have been able to pass on a lot of these higher costs to consumers, so they haven't seen a squeeze in their margins. And from the other side of the equation, households have been able to protect their real wages to some extent, to a considerable extent, from being eroded by inflation by bidding up nominal wage growth. Now, what that has meant is that nominal income growth in the economy has, st- has stayed pretty high. And I think that's one of the reasons growth has remained better. So could the US avoid a recession? Well, it's it's possible, but the scenario, the most likely scenario where we're disappointed and we don't get the recession we're expecting in terms of our forecast, you know, we are still expecting a recession, albeit a bit later, expecting that in Q4 uh, of this year. But if that doesn't happen, the most likely scenario is that nominal GDP growth remains the same. Well, that's a problem then because essentially that's saying that inflation is becoming entrenched. So it's, it's possible that the recession comes later, but if it does, the most likely scenario is one where uh, it requires even more of a monetary policy adjustment uh, to, to bring inflation back down. So then coming on to this critical issue of the central bank battle against inflation, is monetary policy tight enough to bring inflation down to 2% in the major developed markets? And if not, how much further is there to go? Well, what's interesting is that obviously interest rates have gone up a long way since uh, the Fed started raising rates and the ECB started raising rates last year. Uh, The movement has been very swift, but you have to remember that it started at such a low level. So, you know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. One is to look at where are interest rates relative to so-called neutral rates. Economists do calculations of a sort of equilibrium real interest rate in the economy, and they add the inflation target as to sort of what's a what's a neutral rate. Those numbers come out about three percent in the U.S., U.K., two percent ish in in the eurozone. We've only been above neutral since the fourth quarter of last year. So you could argue that monetary policy, even though it was being tightened before then, uh, was really only sort of it was only a question of removing some of the accommodation. We've only gone into sort of restrictive levels, uh, sort of Q4 last year, Q1 this year, so not for very long. The other way of looking at it, of course, is 
to see what's been happening to core inflation. Where is core inflation? It looks like it's settled at something like 5% uh, in the Eurozone and the, and the US, uh, higher numbers in the UK. If you take that as a sort of, uh, you know, where inflation is at the moment on an underlying basis and you compare that with policy rates, it's only in the US that we have positive real interest rates on an ex-post basis in the in the UK and the Eurozone, they're, they're still negative. So you could argue that although we've had an awful lot of uh, adjustment, the absolute stance, you know, uh, and, and this is sort of where, where levels might matter, the absolute stance of monetary policy maybe, maybe isn't that tight. And that kind of speaks to the point I was making about nominal GDP growth holding up. You know, it, it's uh, there's, there's so, so far it looks like, uh, you know, this inflation shock is being accommodated. And of course, you know, the lesson from the 70s is that inflation tends to generate more inflation. It doesn't tend to fix itself. You know, this was an argument we heard from the central banks early on uh, in 2021 was that higher inflation would squeeze real wages, the consumer would fall over, that would cause a recession and inflation would come down on its own. That that analysis has proved to be quite a long way off the mark. And, and really what's, uh, what's coming through again is the lesson from the 70s and the 80s that inflation creates more inflation and in some sense is kind of sustaining things. So I think there is a case that maybe the central banks, you know, even though they've moved a long way, you know, do have further to go. So do we see evidence that the monetary policy transmission mechanism is is actually working or is it just a question that it's slower this cycle, we have to wait and see, you know, are the dynamics different this time? I'm reminded of the expression from the UK in the 1990s that if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. Well, perhaps communication strategy has changed a bit since then for good or ill. Uh, but does this suggest that monetary policy tightening still has quite a long way to go, that we're just not feeling it yet? Well, I think you know some of those comments I made before about the, uh, the outright stance of monetary policy may be not looking that tight. 7% nominal GDP growth, you know, how bad is a 5% interest rate? So it's, I think it, it's partly about the levels. And I, and I certainly think it would definitely not be the right conclusion to draw when we're looking at what's going on to say that it's, you know, somehow economies have become immune to monetary tightening. I really don't, I really don't see it that way. I mean, history, uh, the famous Milton Friedman quote, you know, monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. 18 to 24 months is a, is, is a timeline you see quite often in the literature. Uh, we're not that far in to this, this cycle. When we look for some of the sort of, you know, the, the various ways that monetary policy can affect the economy, we, we look for evidence that they're working. We do see it. We see, we've seen it in asset prices. We've seen the real estate price corrections. That's one of the channels. That's already been very clear in lots of economies. House prices have, uh, have, have started to correct across the board. We've seen that the rise in policy rates has been passed on to interest rates faced by, by new borrowers in the economy. We've seen the tightening of um, banks' willingness to lend in terms of the senior loan officer opinion surveys. They've all deteriorated. So, um, and of course, you know, we've, we've had two blow-ups in the financial sector just as a result of higher interest rates, you know, in the UK LDI crisis and the US banking crisis, essentially showing that interest rates do hurt in the fight, have, have been hurting in the financial sector. So I, I don't think there's really any basis to draw the conclusion that somehow um, monetary tightening isn't going to make anywhere near as much difference. Now, one or two things that I think, you know, may be affecting the dynamics of this process in the US relative to the pre-GFC monetary tightening episode um, is that that household balance sheets are stronger now than they were back then and the duration structure of, of household debt is is a lot more sort of longer term and fixed now than it was than it was back then so 
if you look at the impact of the Fed tightening and the rise in mortgage rates uh, for, for new borrowers in the US, if you look at what's actually been happening to overall, the effective interest rate for the US household sector hasn't moved up very much at all because of the nature of the debt. So I, I think that's probably one factor that has meant that it hasn't had as quick an impact uh, in the US as elsewhere. But uh, at the end of the day, interest rates have gone up a long way. They've got further to go. There is still a lot more debt in the US economy than there was the last time interest rates went up this quickly. So we think that's more of a timing issue than, than some, you know, the fundamentally a lot more resilient to rate hikes than it was before. I'm not sure I would agree with that. And you just mentioned the uh, failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the, the stress in US mid-sized banks a, a couple of months ago. Has that changed your US or global macro outlook? And what now do you see as the key risks either side of your baseline forecast? Yeah, the SVB crisis happened you know, after we published our last GEO. It was, it was a couple of weeks after. Uh, we spent a long time looking at the evidence of you know how that's been affecting things in the US. And as of today, it doesn't look as if it's had a huge impact. When we're looking at we get weekly data on commercial bank credit to the real economy in the US, and it's, it's slowed down, but it's not fallen off a cliff. Uh, we're still getting an expansion in uh, household and uh, commercial property lending. It's still growing. The tightening in credit standards in the senior loan officer surveys that came out after SVB was really quite minimal. So we'd already had a deterioration in that balance before SVB. So at this point, I would say there's no evidence that it's led to an immediate credit crunch. But clearly one thing that has changed is that banks' funding costs are rising. And I think that if, if, if anything, that's going to intensify the impact of, of higher policy rates, policy rates on the economy. So I think that remains a key downside risk for us. It's not, it's not something that's shifted our baseline forecasts in this edition of the GEO very much. But I think it is a key downside risk that because of the rise in bank funding costs, the extraction of liquidity through the QT process that's going to be pushing down bank reserves, that that does result in a tighter credit conditions than we factored in. So I think that's the key downside risk. But uh, on the other hand, the upside risk, as I say, is is that this uh, that it just takes longer for monetary policy to buy it and, and we continue to get decent nominal growth and this inflation shock is accommodated and and perpetuates itself for uh, for for a bit longer, but that comes with uh, with it, with even higher even higher outlook for the Fed. Thanks, Brian, for those great insights, and thank you everyone for listening. For more on Fitch's economic projections, you can access the report we've been discussing, titled "Global Economic Outlook June 2023," along with our other sovereign and economic research on Fitch's website, FitchRatings.com. We hope you join us for the next edition of Fixed Interests.